Now, if you would stand in reverence for the word of God. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handsful of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You may be seated. Thanks, Aaron. I'm glad that you uh, told us where those dolls came from. For a moment, I thought maybe you're just nervous about speaking in front of a uh, large group. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> This is a, a baby bottle full of uh, uh, starbursts. And so uh, the reason why I have this is because we, a couple weeks ago, concluded our baby bottle drive. And we had said in the baby bottle drive, uh, we don't care how much we donate. We just want to be the biggest church that donates. The donates the biggest donation, right? And so, because um, that's a good vain thing to do when we're studying Ecclesiastes. Um, <laughs> But thanks to your generosity, we were able to donate around $22,000 to the CareNet Pregnancy Center. So now we had, we had wanted to get a golden baby bottle as a trophy, but I think this might be better because it's full of starbursts. And so, um, however, in the spirit of passing and paying it forward, passing and sharing the wealth, I'm going to donate this baby bottle to a missionary family I know with two beautiful <laughs> girls. I'm sure those will be gone by the end of the day. 
We're going to jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. My name is Andy, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome and thank you for joining us for worship this morning. As we get into the passage, let me just throw out a couple of quick announcements. Um, Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday in this service, so we're excited about that. Also, um, next Sunday, Pastor Josh will be preaching out at the Dane County Fair. And so we're going to do a little service uh, with the Petrovich's uh, new family at Lakeview uh, out there at the fair. And so Pastor Josh is going to go out there and he's going to be preaching. And I would love if some of you, as much as we'd love to see the baptisms too, it just happens to be the same Sunday. So if some of you want to go out to the fair and enjoy the fair and uh, worship with Pastor Josh out at the the county fair, that would be great. You can talk to Pastor Josh and get more information about that, um, what time and all that kind of stuff. Um, Also, August 1st, we're doing another backyard barbecue. And so uh, the last one we did in June, I thought was, was fabulous. It was really a lot of fun. We have two locations, a Stoughton location and an Oregon location. So if you want to go online at lakeviewfree.org and register, uh, you'll get all the information about that. That's coming up in a few weeks, August 1st. And at the end of July, we're planning a youth group camp out on the church lawn. And we need tents. So if I have two tents, but if you have a tent that you could loan us for a night, uh, it'll be a Friday night to a Saturday, uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. But we could use a tent or two or four, and uh, if you have that, just talk to me after the service today, and we would love uh, to, to get that set up. Okay, let's jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This, this passage is all about oppression and injustice. That's how he starts out, and then he talks a little bit about that. And, and let's, let's start focusing our minds on what Solomon is saying by, by way of this. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech, and in that speech he gave his most iconic one-liner, the, his most well-remembered sentence, uh, and one of the most iconic one-liners that is, has ever been spoken in human history, I think. Uh, how many of you can quote that one-liner? Does anybody know? Go ahead. Just shout it out. Hey, you guys passed civics class. Come on, guys. What's... <laughs> Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. We've all heard that a million times, right? Well, he went on in that speech in the very next sentence to say, My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Powerful words, moving words, stirring words. That very sentiment of working together for the common good of all is all about what Ecclesiastes 4 is focused on. It's, it's, it's about working together to overcome oppression and injustice. Solomon's focus is that injustice in the world. Look at the very first few verses of chapter 4. He says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Man, that's hard to hear. 3,000 years ago when Solomon was walking this earth, he looked out and he saw injustice and oppression and evil in the world. And 3,000 years later, 
The world is full of injustice and oppression and evil, right? Solomon says, it's better off if the, the people who have died are better off than the people who are alive and even better still are those who haven't been born yet to see all the oppression and the injustice that, are, that is in the world. Is it getting any better? Oppression and injustice still exist in our day today. The question is, what are we doing about it? How are we handling it? What are we thinking about it? What are we doing about oppression and social justice and racism and inequality and poverty? And is what we're doing working? We hashtag it. We tweet about it. We post about it on social media. We write blogs about it. There are lots of headlines about social justice. But is what we're doing accomplishing anything? Because 3,000 years after Solomon wrote this, oppression and injustice are alive and well in our society today. I think the question that Solomon is wrestling with in chapter four is this question. Is there any hope for social justice in the world today? That question is just as relevant for us as it was for him 3,000 years ago. Is there any hope for social justice in the world today. It may come as a surprise to many of us to learn that social justice was actually God's idea to begin with. It's not some newfangled uh, progressive idea that we've just come up with since we've been uh, better enlightened. No, it was actually God's idea from the very beginning and we will see that in Ecclesiastes chapter four. I believe the answer to that question is yes, there is hope for social justice in the world today. We have to dig into the passage to find out what it is. The first observation that Solomon makes in this passage is this. Oppression is inevitable because of the way we live and the things we value. Injustice is just a matter of fact and the problem is how we are living life and the things that we think are important, the priorities and the values that we hold. That is the cause of injustice and oppression. Solomon identifies several things uh, to, to make his point. First of all, he says we're motivated by envy. Look at verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. He has something I don't have. I want it. They got something I didn't get. That's not fair. Oh, I, I, you prospered and I didn't. I, it's, now it's my turn to prosper while you suffer. It's not fair. I'm envious. We're motivated out of envy. And that creates oppression and injustice. He also says that, that we're driven by laziness. Verse five, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What's he talking about there? Well, instead of going out to work with my hands, I'm just comfortably folding them and resting and relaxing. And the Bible is full, especially the book of Proverbs, over and over and over again, pointing out the fact that people that don't work don't prosper. <laughs> if you want to, to have success, you need to work for it. A good work ethic, that's part of the scripture. So, but people are, are lazy, we're lazy. And, and Solomon's saying as long as people are motivated by laziness, folding their hands, of course gonna, there's going to be poverty in the world. You've probably known people, I've known people before that are like this, that, that I think, you know, if you would take even half the creative problem-solving effort that you put into getting out of work, you could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We've known people that work so hard to avoid work. They work way harder to, to not work than they would if they were actually just going out and working, right? We've all seen that in, in the world today. Envy, laziness. A third uh, observation Solomon makes is materialism. 
See verse 6, he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. What he's talking about here is somebody who always wants more. But materialism and, and increase and gain oftentimes comes at the expense of peace and quietness and tranquility, particularly with those around us. We, we begin to strive uh, against one another. We begin to, to, to compete against one another. I'm going to prosper, and that means you have to not prosper. Right? We're, we're driven by this materialistic need for more. One of the uh, commentaries that I read this week said, in pursuing out of envy the neighbor above us on the ladder, we inevitably step on the neighbor below us. Right? Oh, I want what you have, so I'm going to strive to get it, and I'm going to fight everybody to get it, and I end up stepping on the head of the person below me. That's the way our society lives. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And Solomon says, of course, in that kind of world, there's going to be injustice and oppression. That's just a given. It's because of the way we live and the things that we value. Another, uh, another value that he points out is individualism. Look at verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. What is he describing here? A person who doesn't care about other people, they're just looking out for number one. I'm going to make sure that my needs are met, that I'm getting what I want, that I'm getting my opportunities, that I am growing, that I am advancing, that I am doing everything for me, and I don't really care about, about sharing that wealth or about helping those in need or about togetherness. No, I'm, I'm living for individualism. I'm living for myself. That's what he's calling out. It's individualism. And the last thing that, that he, uh, observation that he makes that's uh, creating oppression is vain ambition. See verse 13, he says, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. What is he talking about here? He's talking about somebody who starts out with nothing and rises through the ranks to become the most powerful and wealthy person in the land, from rags to riches. The king started out as a prisoner, and then he eventually grew to become the king. And yet, in the midst of his prosperity, in the midst of his advancement, he became arrogant and proud and foolish so that he would no longer accept advice. And Solomon says, look, there's all this advancement. There's, look at, look at the, the massive kingdom that he has. There's no end to all the people that he's ruling over, and yet his position and power have gained him nothing because future generations won't even rejoice that he was the king for a while. He's talking about vain ambition, power for power's sake, material wealth for material wealth's sake, being popular for the popularity's sake, being famous for the sake of being famous, right? This is what he's talking about. And he says it, it doesn't matter. We forget that the reason why God gave us a position or of leadership or, or, or material success or influence with others, the reason why God blessed us with these things is so that we could serve other people. This king forgot about that. 
And Solomon says, look, envy, laziness, materialism, individualism, vain ambition. If this is what he was seeing 3,000 years ago, it's a pretty good list that describes our world today. He says, if this is how we're living life, of course there's going to be oppression and injustice. It's inevitable. It's a fact of life. It's a reality of the world in which we live because it is based on how we are living and what we are valuing. In other words, he's saying there is no hope of social justice in a society that rejects God and lives for self. If that's the way the world is, there is no hope of social justice. All we're going to do is trade out one group that's oppressed for another group that will be oppressed next. That's it. And that's what we've seen time after time after time throughout history. This group is oppressed, so this group rises up and they begin to uh, oppress a different group of people so that this one doesn't have to be oppressed anymore. And then after a while, the tables shift, the balance changes, and now this group is oppressed next and this group has uh, freedom and liberty. And then it, it all, it's just a, a repeating cycle over and over and over again because the point Solomon is making is oppression exists not because we're not enlightened enough, not because we're not educated enough, not because we don't tweet about it enough or hashtag it enough. Oppression exists because we live oppressive lives. Injustice is a reality because we are not a just people. We're sinners. And sin is the cause of injustice and oppression. That's what the, that's what the all, all the other stuff, racism, inequality, and poverty, and all these other things, those are the symptoms. The sickness, the infection is sin. It's the condition of our hearts. It is living a life that rejects God and lives for self. Solomon says that, that always creates oppression and injustice. So what do we do about that? How do we respond to that? We can hashtag it all we want. We can put bumper stickers on our car. We can post on social media. But what are we actually going to do about injustice in the world? Uh, Wayne Cordero says, reading the menu doesn't fill you up. Eating the food does, right? Reading about social justice in the news doesn't actually fix the problems of injustice and oppression in the world. Actually living differently will. And that's what Solomon goes on to say. See, oppression exists and is inevitable because of the way we live and the things we value. But God calls us to live a different way and to value different things. God's way is a different way. God's values are different values. First of all, God calls us, he invites us to live in harmony with God. Now, I'm not going to dig too deeply into that because that was a major point in last week's sermon. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go online, lakeviewfree.org, look up the sermon from last week, and I talked a lot about living in harmony with God. But God's heart for justice is where social justice originated. It was God's plan in the beginning. And if we're going to live in harmony with God, that means we're going to take social justice seriously. Not just through a hashtag, but through the way we live our lives. Here is a picture of God's heart for justice. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Fundamentally, God's approach to the world begins with love. Love is God's approach, not just for you, but for the whole world. 
God loves you. God loves the person sitting next to you. God loves the person living across the street from you. God loves the person living on the other side of the tracks in the bad part of town. God loves the people across the ocean in countries that we identify as developing nations where there are poor and impoverished. God loves all people. God loves the world. That is his fundamental approach to the world. And God knows that the fundamental problem of injustice and oppression isn't education, enlightenment, or technology. The problem is sin. So in order to deal with oppression in the world, first we have to deal with the sin that creates it. That's why Jesus came. He gave his life freely and willingly as a sacrifice to pay for our sin, your sin and mine because our selfish attitudes have contributed to the injustice in the world. So Jesus said, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to take on all of the injustice on myself and I'm going to take, take it to the cross and put it to death. And once sin has been adequately broken and dealt with, then we can begin to live lives that are just and free and work together for the freedom of all. Another thing, uh, scripture, Deuteronomy 10, 18, here's God's heart for justice. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and he gives them food and clothing. This was God's idea from the beginning. Psalm 103, verse six, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. All who are oppressed can trust in God for their justice. Galatians 3.28, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. Where did equality come from? Where did the, the line in our constitution, all men are created equal, where did those ideas come from? From this verse. Among us, you are all equal. No one's better than anyone else. This is God's heart for justice in the world. Jesus gave perhaps the greatest statement of social justice in Matthew 22, 39, when he said the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, if we would just do that, so much oppression and injustice would vanish. If we would just love our neighbors as much as we love our own selves. We're called to live a different way and to value different things. We're called to live in harmony with God and we're called to live in community with others. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon is talking there about living life together, living in community with others. This is not an individualistic faith. Ours is not a path of individualism. Ours is life together. Ian Provan said, the Bible is about persons in community whether in the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit, or in the church, or in the world at large. The proper goal of the Christian is not an individualistic heaven, but is to be found in right relationship with God, neighbor, 
and God's world now and in the future, which will include, by God's grace, a future stretching beyond death. We are meant to go through life together, living in harmony with God, living in community with others, and therein finding hope for social justice in the world. See, Solomon, in that, those few verses there, is, is realigning our values. Oppression exists because we value the wrong things. And Solomon's saying, no, let's, let's realign our values. Let's value material, material mutual success instead of envy. Instead of being jealous of what somebody else has, instead of coveting what my neighbor has, no, let's work together so that we both succeed and prosper. We value mutual success over envy of others. We value working hard together instead of laziness. By the way, laziness is often disguised as self-care. Oh, I need self-care, right? It's just an excuse to sometimes be lazy. Solomon says, no, we have a good work ethic. Let's work hard together, but not for our own selfish gain. That's the next value, contentment with peace instead of getting more stuff with strife. Yes, we work hard together, but we are also content with what we have. Better to have one handful with peace than two handfuls with strife, right? He's realigning our values. True friendship instead of more money. What is truly valuable in the world? Is it how much money we have in the bank? Not when the stock market crashes. What's truly valuable in the world? It's the relationships we have with other people. I have never heard a story about someone who lay on their deathbed moments before death and said, I'm so thankful that I have millions of dollars in the bank even though I don't have any friends. Boy, I'm so glad I invested my life storing up millions of dollars in the bank. I don't have any friends. I'm all alone on my deathbed. I'm talking to the nurse because nobody else is here. But gee, I am so glad that I have all that money. Never heard anybody say that. No, we don't read that because what's truly meaningful, what's truly valuable, what truly impacts lives are the relationships that we have with others. That's where true wealth is found in friendship. Solomon says we should, we should value mutual success, working hard together, contentment, true friendship, and lastly, we should value the common good instead of self-advancement. If we live in such a way that all I care about is I'm looking out for number one, and I'm making sure that I'm getting ahead and I don't care about my neighbors, well, there's always going to be injustice and oppression. But if we say, no, we're going to advance together. We're going to work together. We're going to grow together. We're going to grow closer to Christ together. We're going to make the world a better place for everyone. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight as the Sunday school song goes. That's what he's talking about. Instead of working for self-advancement, we work together for the common good of all. This is what Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes 4. This is the heart of God. And our job is to live in harmony with God and live in community with others. And here's the thing. God's way works. God's way for social justice actually works. I found some amazing statistics as I was uh, researching for this passage this week. Do you know where public hospitals came from? Christians. Before there were Christians in the world, there were no such thing as public hospitals. If you got sick, you better just hope that you got better. 
because there was no hope. And if you got sick enough, your family would drag you out into the street and leave you to die alone in the gutter so that you wouldn't spread your sickness to everybody else in the house. And Christians began to go out and pick up these sick and dying people from the streets and bring them into their church buildings and care for them. And over time, they created hospitals where the sick could come and receive healing. It's Christians who were trying to live out the pattern of Christ of bringing healing to the sick. That's where public hospitals originated. And today, 40% of all healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa comes from Christian organizations. 40% of all healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa is provided by Christians. What about things like slavery? How did slavery in the West come to an end? Through Christians like William Wilberforce, who served in the parliament in Britain, Great Britain, and was called by God, believed that he had been called by God to dedicate his entire life and career to ending slave trade in the UK. And by the end of his life, he had accomplished that goal. Slavery in the United States was brought to an end by Christians like Harriet Tubman, who received a vision from God calling her to go back and rescue her African-American brothers and sisters out of slavery through the Underground Railroad at great personal risk of her own life. And yet she did, and she worked for that. Christians called by God to bring freedom to the captives. Think about the Salvation Army. It's founded in 1865 by a pastor named William Booth who wanted to bring the gospel and food and clothing and shelter to the poor and the downcast. Salvation Army is active in over 100 countries around the world today. A Christian organization helping those in need. What about modern times? Modern day uh, in the news, Christians are often portrayed and caricatured as the unjust people in society. But is that actually true? I found some pretty amazing statistics from the Pew Research Center, the Barna Research Group, and the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Uh, Here are some statistics. Christians today in the United States donate to charity more than three times the percentage of their income as non-Christians. Christians give more than three times the percentage of their income to both religious and non-religious charities. We are more generous. Christians volunteer more than non-Christians. Christians are more likely to donate blood. We just had a blood drive at the church a few days ago. Christians are more than twice as likely to adopt as the general population is. Christians are more likely to adopt older children. Christians are more likely to adopt children with special needs. Christians are more likely to adopt children who have been labeled by the system as hard to place. Christians are the ones adopting these children. Christians are three times more likely to serve as foster parents than non-Christians are. In fact, 65% of all non-kin foster parents are Christians. 65%. Now these these organizations want to shut down Christian adoption agencies and foster placement uh, because we don't agree with their political views. But what happens to the 65% of the kids who are currently being fostered by Christian homes when Christians aren't allowed to foster anymore? Who's going to care for them? Not the world. Christians are the ones doing the work of social justice. In one state, for example, the state of Arkansas, 40%, over, just over 40% of all foster homes are recruited by a single Christian organization. 
It's the call of Arkansas. One Christian organization recruits more than 40% of all foster homes in the state of Arkansas. That's just one organization, and it's a Christian one. We just gave $22,000 to the CareNet Pregnancy Center because God stirred your hearts to be generous, to help those in need. See, Christians do this. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge, we don't always get it right. Sometimes we allow our hearts to be drawn away from God's way of living so that we live and value the same things the world does. We start looking out for number one. We start living for our own self-advancement. We start becoming individualistic and materialistic. And when Christians lose sight of God's way, we fail to do social justice too. These things don't change overnight. It took a long time for slavery in the West to come to an end. But eventually it does as we continue to live the way Jesus lived under the power and leadership of the Holy Spirit. These statistics are good and interesting. I've seen them firsthand. Here's a picture. A few years, several years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Guatemala on a mission trip. And uh, one of the places that we went and served at was a home for teenage girls called Esperanza y Futuro, which means hope and future. This was a home that rescued girls out of the most severe and, uh, and agonizing abuse that you could ever imagine. Every kind of, abu- of abuse possible happened to these girls. Every kind of abuse possible. By multiple people, multiple family members, multiple times, sometimes over years of their lives, they were abused, they were hurt, and, and this Guatemalan woman decided she wanted to start a home to help them because Christ had rescued her and she wanted to extend his grace and love to others. So she started the home Hope and Future and she began to work with the Guatemalan government. She began to recruit and build resources and make connections and and all these things. And these girls were rescued out of their home, out of their abusive situation. Some of them were orphans. Their parents are dead. They were placed in this home and they had for the first time in their lives a safe place to sleep at night. They had for the first time in their lives three square meals a day clothes that they could wear that weren't ripped and ragged. They had education opportunities, learning to read and write and go to school. They had vocational training. Many of them have now, uh, since this picture was taken, they've become adults. They've, they've graduated from school. Some of them are going to college. Some of them are, are working in careers. They're supporting themselves. Some of them are married with kids. The most important thing that she introduced to them was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we came down, Uh, to Guatemala and we brought about 26 people with us and we came to the home and nine of the girls who were there said, we have become Christians and we want to get baptized. God has changed our lives. You're a pastor, will you baptize us? So one of the most amazing things that I've ever gotten to do in ministry was baptize these nine girls who had become followers of Christ. Not only had their physical lives been changed but their eternal lives had been changed. Not only were were their lives changed, but the lives of their kids and their grandkids for generations will be changed because one woman decided that she wanted to apply the gospel to helping those who are in need. That is God's plan for social justice at work, making the world a better place one life at a time. God's way works. Oppression is inevitable in a society that rejects God and lives for self, but God calls us to live a different way. 
the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus begins by coming to Jesus. By saying, I acknowledge that my selfishness and my envy and my individualism and my materialism and my laziness and my this, I have contributed to injustice in the world today. I have gone my own way, but I am turning away from that and I am turning to Christ and I am accepting his forgiveness for my sin and I am choosing to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. When you make that decision, you begin to live a different way. And God works through you to bring freedom and healing to those who need it most. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how much you love the world. And you love to help those who are in need all of us have been in need. Maybe not material need. We've all been in spiritual need. We've all been spiritually bankrupt at some point in our lives. And yet you came in, you took our sin and our injustice and our oppression and you exchanged it for your love and your grace and your mercy and your freedom. So we give ourselves to you Would you lead us in how we can share your love with others through small, simple acts of kindness and generosity? Change the values of our hearts. Realign us to to your word and your way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.